Welcome to Monster Porn, weird fiction and horror podcast. The podcast where every day is like Halloween and prom night. This week's story is A Shadow by Daylight by Brett Norwood. Jesus, what the hell are you doing? Waiting on you, as usual. Why the fuck are you in my shop? Why the fuck are you upside down? You didn't see my text? I have a story for monster porn. Yeah, why the fuck are you upside down? Maybe you are upside down. Yeah, and maybe you're out of your gut. Wait, are you recording this? Well, yes. We want to capture everything we can for the podcast, of course. You don't clean atop your rafters in here, do you? I've never even seen the tops of my rafters. Hmm. Hi, little jumping spider. You can come down from the rafters now. You know, most men cover their shop's walls in pinup girls. Or bats. Pictures of bats. But I see you have pictures of Stephen King everywhere. Does looking at him give you... The stand? Do you like it? You like it, don't you? What? Do you do the shining of your Tommy Knocker at four past midnight to Stephen King over by your lawnmower man? What? I don't... Don't be ashamed. We all do needful things in desperation when we've got insomnia in the night shift. I see what you're doing. Stephen King is an incredible writer. Okay, Matt. If that's what it's about, we'll keep it. On writing. Yeah, whatever, dude. Uh, so who's your greatest influence? You know that I prefer nonfiction. So if you have to consider something more recent than the pyramid texts, I would have to say Lovecraft or Poe. Those are fiction. Well, yes, they took some liberties. For example, changing the names of things so that they could not accidentally be summoned by the uninitiated. You probably believe in the Easter Bunny or Bigfoot. Next you'll tell me that there's no such thing as the Mothman. There's not. Probably. Then who's this up in the rafters with me? All right, should we just do the story? Ah, let's. I'm done with that shit. No more Caitlin. The leading me on every summer through college just to go back to her school and me mine for her to reunite with her questionable boyfriend. She quite earnestly confessed she didn't love. Had never said I love you too had never been able to force herself to say the words, I love you too. I must be the steel that the rain beats against, and the rain doesn't change a thing. It's 2008, the emo years. I am telling myself these maxims of wisdom in a traffic jam on the 405, which I only took because there was also a traffic jam on Sepulveda. It's sunny California, and K-Rock is broadcasting the most doom-laden, rain-soaked guitars from some dreary redwood forest ever to grace, or to doom, rather, pop radio. The window's down and I can smell the ocean, and the exhaust, and the sewage. I'm stopped near the cemetery. Tombstones to the left of me, the beaches to the right, here I am. A motorcycle splits the lane and careens within inches of my rear view, shocking me to my senses. The white van in front of me inches forward. I do the same. I was interning at Intercept Pictures, 
the studio that did several popular home renovation reality shows for HG back in the day. It had been my bright idea to search out a vegetarian cafe in Santa Monica, rather than to go straight to the apartment from Wilshire. Otherwise, I would have avoided this clusterfuck. I mention it only because it was while I was locked in traffic that I looked out at the concrete barrier of the 405 and saw for the first time the graffito of the Shadow Man, a human figure colored in entirely, in this case in purple spray paint, with a large eye hovering over his eyeless head. More of the images cropped up through February, not usually spray paint, but more often a printed decal on a streetlight or a sign. People began to talk about it. Well, the air of mystery was dispelled pretty quickly. I was at work and overheard the producer, Stuart Papadopoulos, talking to Jeff, another intern. It's called guerrilla marketing, he said. He launched on a long story about the marketing campaign he, really his marketing team, had employed on their MySpace documentary as a way to enlighten Jeff as to the nature of guerrilla marketing. Really, Stuart just liked talking about his accomplishments more than anything. I pitied the female interns most, whom he most wanted to impress. I applaud Jeff for bringing the conversation back to its focus. So, like, what is the Shadow Man marketing for? he asked. Oh, you haven't heard of The Secret Power of Us. It's a book, a bestseller right now. Anyway, it turns out the Shadow Man campaign came out in advance of its launch to build curiosity that they could turn into hype. What Stuart actually said went on longer than this. But, at any rate, Jeff finally inserted himself again. What's it about? Oh, Stuart pivoted. Uh, it's one of those new-agey, self-help kind of books. The idea, which is bullshit, is that we can do things with our minds, shape reality to our will, whatever, etc. You know, bullshit. I'd like to point out that that's exactly what Stuart Papadopoulos did for a living. He used cameras, story editing, and selective attention to shape something that was explicitly branded as reality on TV. It wasn't magic, but same effect. No more than a week later, we were all in a meeting in the conference room, where Stu Papa revealed his grand plan for a documentary, an expose, of this secret power BS. It's like Scientology, he said. But we can nip this one in the bud before it gets too big to tackle. We reach out to a few adherents, especially ex-adherents if we can find them. We go undercover to their little new age seances. We crash whatever bullshit we can with cameras, etc. Clive, who was the heavy-set black story editor, loved it. I think he was tired of teasing drama out of the endless torn-up kitchens, demolished walls, light fixture shopping, paint selection and chronically late-to-the-meeting contractors. Clive wanted it greenlit that afternoon. At Stu Papa's beckoning, Jeff got up and distributed copies of The Secret Power of Us from a large white box that was by the door. He slapped one down in front of me with a thud. Hardcover. This prompted Stuart to say, Not in paperback yet, or I would have gotten it and saved a few bucks. Clive, who had been reading the inner flap, looked at Stuart with a wide smile and said, Oh man, brother, you haven't got us the signed copies. What? Stuart looked panicked. Just joking, Chief, Clive assured him. We all knows he is a cheap ass. We interns kept our smirks in careful check and reveled vicariously through the laughter of the producers. As Stuart went on with his pitch, I handled the book. The cover had an arabesque floral purple and blue border around a jaundiced field that featured the shadow man overseen by the seeing eye. On the spine, there was the eye again, but this time imposed over the top of the vertical staff of a square cross. Need you in turns to read it, Stuart said. One of us, Katrina, who was the boldest because it was pretty clear Stuart was extremely attracted to her, grumbled and asked, Uh, so like, how many hours are you okay with for this? Frustration flashed across Stu Papa's red face. But it was gone in a heartbeat, because this was Katrina of the dark doe eyes and flattering halter top. It was pretty clear he had not intended for us to read it on the clock. Well, uh, eight hours, he said. If it takes longer than that, come talk to me. Katrina nodded and turned the book over in her hands to read the back. I did the same and noticed there was something like a chip embedded in the jacket by the barcode. 
perhaps an anti-theft measure, something to set off store door alarms. There was also a trademark for the symbols used on the book. They belonged to something called H-A-D-M. After judging a book by its cover, the next thing I tend to do is read the first line. If the first line blows, the rest of the book usually does too. Because if they couldn't get the first line right, what are the odds they got anything else right? I flip through the flyleaf, title page, copyright, another title page, this one with the shadow man, a dedication, and finally found the start of the text. I read to myself, You're going to die. Good luck. I laughed out loud and everyone turned to me. That evening, I started reading the book, and already by the next week, Stu Papa had gotten the documentary greenlit, under the working title, Broken Secrets, Behind the Power of Us. I got transferred from working on the home shows to full-timing Broken Secrets, and my first assignment was research. I was supposed to look into the book, who this author, X. Martin Luthier, was, where the book came from, who published it, and so on. In the following weeks, we started seeing the Shadow Man placed in TV shows that had nothing obvious to do with the book. It was the talk of the office to take role every morning of who had seen the Shadow Man where, whether it be in real life or on the tube. Sometimes we would dispatch the B-roll guys to get footage of the symbol around the city. But the placement in TV shows was more curious. It was clear pretty quickly that this wasn't coming from one studio, or even one parent company. The only thing these shows had in common was that they never addressed the appearance of the symbol. It would just be there, in the background, on a poster, on a record cover in the character's vinyl collection, or on an extra's t-shirt. In one show, I mean one of the big police procedurals, the shadow man was made when the detective himself stepped into the shadow and struck the pose while a light bulb glared above him like a pupil in the iris of its aluminum lampshade. Easter eggs. The appearances always had the feel of Easter eggs. We had never seen marketing like this before. That's when some dude flying went viral on YouTube. I mean, he was flying without a plane. It was a short clip of dubious quality, and I'm sure you've seen ones like it. A shaky camera pointed at an overcast sky, zoomed in on a black dot that could have been anything up there. And slowly it focuses, and a form emerges from the fuzz, enough to show that it has arms and legs and a head, a human shape, up there in front of the clouds. The video had no beginning and no end. You don't see how he got up there or how he got down. It would also be pretty easy to duplicate with special effects, not just digital effects, but even by flying a kite, which the guys on the Discovery Show demystified, demonstrated. It was, really, not worth anyone's time, but that didn't stop it from going viral. The description on the original YouTube post credited the miracle to the teachings in X. Martin Luthier's book. The debunkers were all over it in no time, which assured me there was still some sanity left in the world. Luthier was probably already filthy fucking rich by the point that the film adaptation of his book was announced. And that made me sick. Another Eckhart Tolle, or Greg Braden, talking mystic but taking money. I imagined what his house must have been like either in Topanga Canyon or right on the beach in Malibu. This was a complete guess, but it inspired me to try Googling where he lived. However, I couldn't find a picture of the real thing. No doubt a man like Luthier wouldn't want his address to be public knowledge if he could help it. And he probably spent good money trying to help it. How was the book? I can't say I really got into it. But it was easy to read, written in an accessible and witty style that had been portended with the opening line telling me I was going to die. The thesis of the thing was that the human is a spiritual being, whose life takes place 
in the midst of a spiritual cosmic war between light powers and dark. And the flesh is just an appearance and a trap. The proof, which I'll put in scare quotes, was the claim that people have parapsychological powers, basically telepathy, telekinesis, remote viewing, Geller bending silver spoons, etc. This was tenuous proof because it lacked for proof itself. That said, I was fascinated by the anecdotes in the book. They pulled me on, and a part of me wanted them to be real the same way I always, in some part of my mind, wanted UFOs or Bigfoot to be real. I ran out the eight hours of paid time Stuart had approved, somewhere about three quarters through the book, and I put it down. I meant to ask him to give me more time, but I kept putting it off, and the book sat for a while. Since I was getting paid for research, I continued with that. The trademark holder on the book, HADM, had a website where I learned that the acronym stood for Human Advancement Mission. In a forum, I came across the tidbit that the really hardcore secreteers understood that Luthier's teachings drew on an older book by a 19th century occultist, and the mythology he set out in it, supposedly revealed in seance with a being from outer space called Xanadu who does not explain why his name looks just like the historical capital of China. You can't make this shit up. It really was Scientology all over again. I searched the Los Angeles Public Library and the L.A. County Library System for a copy. There was only one, and it was in south-central L.A. of all places, at A.C. Bilbrew Library on El Segundo. As I was driving east down El Segundo in the afternoon, for some reason, I guess because I was pointed at the horizon and the far brown San Bernardinos, on a long, wide stretch of flat road, I felt like I was speeding in a rocket ship toward the end of the atmosphere, and I thought of a Mayan or perhaps Aztec relief that showed up a lot in the ancient alien books I read as a kid, that they claimed depicted a headdressed warrior piloting a rocket. He leaned back in a rectangular cockpit with feathers dripping from his crown and that typical horrible grimace found in the faces of ancient Mesoamerican art, while flames emerged behind him. It really did look like he was under G-forces. And now I imagined a modern version of the so-called astronaut, his descendant perhaps, a cholo in a rice burner speeding down El Segundo with a backfire flame spitting out his tailpipe. That horizon and my rocketeering toward it gave me the thought that the world is like a prison. I could speed toward the horizon as long as forever, launch off into outer space, but never would I reach the end of things and peer beyond the veil. The world is infinite or at least big enough to be so for all practical purposes. A prison, by definition, is a place the walls of which cannot be breached from the inside. I don't know why this depressed me. Inside A.C. Bilbrew Library, it was 1992, or looked just like it. I mean, everything was clean and nice and kept up, but it just looked like my memory of the early 90s when hip-hop first broke into the mainstream and inner-city culture was cool in a way I don't think it had been before, at least among Midwest small-town white kids like me, anyway. There was a colorful mural on the wall. The furnishings were dated. There were relatively few stacks of books, only along the northern wall of the building. A cute young woman was at the desk and smiled at me when I came in. I could not tell whether she was 14 or 24. An older woman with a bitter face gave me a more skeptical look. I walked right to the stacks and, as having worked at a library through summers in college prepared me, I was able to home in right on the book without the card catalog. The volume was a collection titled 19th Century Voices in Dialogue with Science and Religion, which included, alongside more prosaic contents concerning Protestantism, Darwinism, animal magnetism, etc., this anomaly called the demon's hammer. I was amused to find it tucked away in this unlikely collection in this unlikely library. As I stood there in the stacks, I flipped the plain gray library-bound book open and found the work. The first line was a schizophrenic slur of vowels and consonants, some sort of pseudomagical invocation like abracadabra on steroids. It didn't particularly make me want to read on. 
I bent the pages under my thumb and let them flip ahead. I was stopped by an etched print included as its own plate in the middle of the text. Over a marble earth, a titanic skeletal face lifted the veil of the starry heavens with emaciated fingers to peer down on the world. From the black gaps between the stars, something like droplets of motor oil were beginning to rain down toward earth. It was captioned, The offspring of Iblis, called otherwise the lords of the distant cold, proceeding into the cosmos. I'd wear that on a t-shirt, I thought, and I snapped the cover shut. Also, the Cold Lords was set to be the name of my next Scandinavian black metal band. Near the children's section and by the bank of public computers, there was an egg-shaped reading chair. I had seen one like it in my hometown library as a little kid in the late 80s. I was tempted to get in it, but instead I sat at a table and stared at it. After a moment, I opened the book and read a couple pages. It began with a description of a lute. It talked about how the string vibrates and makes the sound, and how there are seven kinds of strings. The string is not the sound, and the sound is not the string. We don't think about the string because all we notice is the sound that the strings make when we listen to the musician. I didn't finish the parable before I gazed off into the void behind the 90s wall mural with the realization that X. Martin Luthier was a pseudonym. He must have called himself Luthier, a lute maker, based on this metaphor that I was reading. I was shaken from this reverie when I noticed the young woman, a page rather than a full librarian, I guessed, was coming near me. I scrambled for an excuse to say something to her, but just as my lips and hers were beginning to curl upward into a polite smile, my cell rattled on the table. I frowned at the message. A text from Caitlin said, Hey, just thought of you and wanted to say hello. How in the world? It was like she knew, like she had a sixth sense to detect the instant when my attention was in danger of drifting away from her permanently. The library page had gone by and was talking with the kid at the computers. Now a part of me wanted even more to talk to her, as if only to make a point to myself, to an imaginary Caitlin who watched me always. But now I didn't really feel like it. I checked out the book from the other lady at the desk, who continued to scrutinize me under that perpetual skepticism. She didn't say anything to me until she tucked the ticket into the book and handed it back to me. There you go, she said under leveled eyelids. Somehow, I knew the hag was judging me for eyeballing her younger co-worker. The Cold Lords were one of the factions in the cosmic war hinted at in The Secret Power of Us, and the Shadow Man was the representation of one. I would learn that the luminous eye above it, called a Watcher, was keeping it in check. According to the mythos, the Watchers persecuted and imprisoned the Cold Lords because, otherwise, were they left unchecked, these spiritual beings would be powerful enough and malignant enough to ruin the entire creation. Around that time, another video went viral, posted on YouTube by a Mexican account that had little karma before the video. In a dim and closed space that might have been a rainwater sewer, there was screaming, multiple voices, one man and one woman at least, and a weird, buttery, flickering effect to the lighting that almost made one feel seasick. The shadow of a man slipped across the concrete wall, making me jump, I'll admit it. It leapt from one shadow to another and the videographers claimed this was not simply a normal person being backlit off-camera, but that this shadow belonged to no one then present in the sewer. It made me jump, but in the seconds it took for my faculty of reason to return, much like the high-flying guru, it was not an impressive video. The description was a quote that also appeared in The Demon's Hammer. A day comes when even shadows will leave the dark and walk in daylight. About this time, an acquaintance from college, who is also in L.A., contacted me. His name was Dusty Shue. Back not long after I had met him, he had assured me, 
that this image of a well-used hiking shoe had been intentional on his dad's part. I can't imagine how his dad won that battle with the mother. But by all indications, she was also a free-spirited hippie like the rest of the family. Dusty was a singer-songwriter living in a New Age commune where his mother worked in the mailroom. I invited him over one afternoon. He brought his guitar and a six-pack of Alaskan amber, saying, I don't really drink, but I think this is what people do when they're over as guests, right? Bring some beer? And he laughed. I told him I didn't drink much either. In the course of the afternoon of playing guitar and drinking, he returned the invitation, inviting me to see where he lived, which he explained as communal living for people who benefited from the work of a popular guru named Roger Solomon. That struck me as the least sagely name for a supposed wisdom teacher, and I was surprised to learn that he hadn't been born with it, but picked it intentionally. Solomon was a biblical king, okay, but who the hell was Roger? Not a name in any book of the Bible or a Upanishad or Sutra I'd ever heard of. This was all unrelated, as far as I could tell, to what I was researching for work. But I did want to ask Dusty what he thought of the secret power. And I was also a little morbidly curious to see the inside of what seemed to me on the outside to be a cult. Dusty told me to come over any time in the late morning or early afternoon on a Saturday. He would be around. When I plugged the address into Google Maps, I was surprised to find that the compound was on Adams, in central L.A., definitely not the neighborhood I imagined. But there it was, basically a mansion tucked behind a wall of bricks and an additional wall of shrubs, so that it could hardly be seen from the street, tucked in right among much smaller houses that all had security bars on their doors and windows, and next to a bus stop. Again, you can't make this shit up. There was a speaker box by the gate where I idled with my window down. I felt out of place in Central, and I felt out of place in a spiritual compound. And now I braced myself to be grilled on my purpose for being there. However, when I told the grainy female voice I was visiting Dusty Shoe, she said, Oh yes, indeed, he just came down to meet you. He met me in the parking lot, and I asked him how he knew I had arrived. We hadn't set a time. Intuition, man, he said. Sometimes you just have a feeling and you gotta listen. Hey man, I'll give you the tour and then it'll be about time for them to start serving lunch if you care to have a bite. Again, the place was a mansion. We entered through a sort of lobby in the atrium with a lady at the front desk. There was a sitting room to one side with a library. And ahead, a curling flight of hardwood stairs and a couple hallways. There was a large window over the front doors, through which light poured in. He took me upstairs and showed me his room first, where he played a Cat Stevens tune for me on the guitar while I sat on the edge of his futon. It was rather like a typical dorm room. He stopped in the middle of the song to repeat a teaching of Roger Solomon. It was a variation on the cliché marching chant. What do we want? Patience! When do we want it? We're trying not to care! Then he showed me the mail room in the basement, and I met his mother. She wanted me to pick up a brochure on Roger Solomon's teaching from the lady in the atrium. I said that I would. Dusty assured her that he'd get me a copy. Her adoration for this Roger Solomon made me want to cringe, especially since I had now seen his photo and knew that he looked like your average 50-year-old yuppie in mediocre health with curly hair, unfashionable reading glasses, and a car salesman's smile. Then we went out back to the gardens and courtyard and had lunch which had come from a hot food bar they set up twice a day in one of the sunrooms. What do you think of the secret power? I asked him. Haven't read it, Dusty told me. Hmm, I acknowledged. But, he went on, you've got to believe in the power of the soul, man, because it's there. You can deny it or you can nurture it. Those are your options. So you better nurture it, right? How do you know it's there? I asked him. Listening. Listening? Yeah, man. Paying attention, I mean. Like I said, it's there. So I don't know what to think about the secret power book. But anything that is out there waking people up to the inner awareness has got to be a positive, I think. While we were talking, a woman came out into the courtyard, and, rather embarrassingly, I was mid-sentence and lost track of what I was saying when I saw her. 
She carried herself like a somebody, full of soul, we'll say, wearing a black sundress that was casual but of elegant cut. Her black hair was a mane that showed subtle chestnut where the sun hit it. I detected she was older than me. I was 23, but I was unsure by how much. Probably not older than 30. She didn't have a model's face, but one full of character, dimples, smile lines, rich eyebrows, a single thoughtful crease across her forehead. Dusty called her over to meet me. This is my buddy Zach Cal, he said, and he likewise gave her name to me, which I won't repeat, because she had a famous last name that made me suspicious she came from the family of that last name. I stood to shake her hand, trying to be cool but she hugged me with no hesitation right to her bosom like I was the most intimate acquaintance. It's funny I would meet someone today, she said. She was exuberant, yet pronounced every word quite carefully, as if she were halfway to a high-class British accent, or perhaps Australian. You can tell that it wasn't a clear-cut thing. It was like how people talked in old movies. It's funny because I had a dream last night that I would meet someone new. I blushed. I could feel myself blush. I literally blushed like a 12-year-old girl. Dusty explained to me that she was a poet, and she went on to explain that she was launching a poetry foundation as a non-profit. I asked her if one could find her work out in the world because I would look it up. She told me not yet. She mainly performed her poetry, and she let me know of a private performance coming up in a small theater in Venice. Dusty would be providing guitar accompaniment. She invited me, and I promised to attend. After lunch, Dusty took me back upstairs where he showed me the reflection room, another sunroom. The screen door had a sign on it, and he stopped with his hand on the knob to reinforce what it said. There's a rule for the reflection room that we have to ask you to follow, and that is no talking. There's no talking at all in the reflection room. I nodded. It was a narrow room with a line of wicker chairs looking out to the north. The city, the downtown, the Santa Monica's, the Hayes. The Hollywood sign was just out of view. A couple white cotton ball clouds floated slowly over the hills. Dusty sat in a chair, and I did the same. Again was that horizon, that unbreachable wall of my own perception beyond which was what? Unknown. Unknowable. I saw what I saw as a sort of blindfold tied around my head. Might as well be. I wanted there to be a truth behind what I saw, but what I saw was in the way of seeing farther. I thought of the grimacing skull in the illustration, peering around the veil of the night sky. It gave me chills. I was dusty, so certain there was a deeper reality. As far as I could imagine, there was no seeing around the surface. One of the clouds looked like a gorilla. It almost ruined what was otherwise a dramatic cityscape on a beautiful day. Because the cloud, just by chance and wind currents, for a moment happened to look like a silly gorilla. It was a ridiculous thing to trouble me so deeply. But I could only console myself against abject horror at the stupidity of the universe by telling myself it was indeed a cloud and not some profane caricature of an ugly gorilla, I had to refuse to believe that God, that word in scare quotes, was either a bad artist or an irreverent one. But that led me to go farther. Yes, the cloud was not a gorilla, but really it wasn't a cloud either. What I mean is that the particles in the cloud happened to drift into a form that my mind recognized as the face of a gorilla. It was the same thing for recognizing it as a cloud. Some particles of whatever constituted this reality had happened to pass into the form that my mind labeled as a cloud. If it wasn't a gorilla, it also wasn't a cloud. Both names were but metaphors for something... Something wholly inexpressible. Again I had arrived at the wall. I could not see beyond my senses, neither could I now rely on words or the logical deductions built from them to peer deeper than the surface of this dissatisfying world. It occurred to me then, 
another metaphor, or the meaning thereof. What I cannot see is darkness, what I cannot know is shadow. The shadow man, the unseeable beyond the world. In a flash, through some eye deeper than my eye, I intuited something like a tarry fluid surging in the unknown, a sea which bloomed in awakening eyes. Dusty was looking at me. I cleared whatever curious expression might have been found on my face and nodded at him. When we closed the screen door behind us, he said, I didn't really mean to spend 40 minutes in there, but hey, you gotta listen. After I left the compound, I finished reading Secret Power. I didn't care about getting more hours authorized. The last pages were not terribly revelatory, but continued with anecdotes of spiritual powers and concluded with a general thesis that the soul must exist and must be nurtured. However, on the last page there was another Shadow Man image. This one differed from the one on the front, which had the overseeing eye above it. This time the eye above was shut, and a single Cyclopean one had opened in its own face. The shadow man raised his left palm like he was waving, or swearing on the Bible in court. I immediately turned to the demon's hammer to search for deeper secrets. There I learned about a cult passed down from antiquity under various names and symbols, which at one epoch had, in a certain guise, been one of the Roman mystery religions that had produced both senators and emperors, and in another had been the secret society of Renaissance artists and thinkers that met with a hand sign in sewers and catacombs. Throughout history, they had used certain signs like passwords to know each other and to tag their works. If a work of art bore a signature, then the others knew the work was in service of their mission and teaching. The author explained it was like flying a banner in war so that you knew who in the fray was friend and who was foe. And they viewed the world as a war, a war for freedom and truth, so declared, between the powers within man and the powers that would keep him prisoner. Here was the kernel that had been spun off into the popular self-help book. I learned more, but it is more suitable to show than to tell. I remember Jeff reported to Stewart that a shadow man tag had been found in the sewer outlet into the L.A. River in Culver City on Overland near the library. I also knew from the demon's hammer that the initiates had a proclivity for meeting underground and on the evening of the new moon. I told this to Stupapa privately in his office and suggested crashing their meeting with a camera. He immediately assembled a team in the break room. It was me, only because I had done the research. Him, because he had this fantasy of doing some guerrilla documentary making like he had as a younger man. And Katrina, because she was hot. He told us his plan, which was my plan from his mouth, and commanded us not to tell anyone else. This was to be a secret, even in the office, to be sure that we caught the meeting absolutely by surprise. Katrina asked if this was safe. Stu Papa literally tried to flex every muscle in his dad bod, as he assured her it would be. He impressed on us how lucky we were as interns to be included on this. On the night of the new moon, Stu Papa looked me up and down in the Culver Library parking lot and commented on how calm I was. He liked it. I just smirked and looked at the sky. I had some idea what we were crashing. He did not. The three of us walked down the concrete embankment toward the river that was little more than a trickle of sewage. The culvert emerged from the embankment like a hobbit hole if hobbit architecture were designed by minimalist Soviet architects. I met Stu Papa's eyes. Would it be Macho Man first or the Calm Guy first? It certainly wouldn't be ladies first. Katrina hung behind us, crossing her arms, face puckered up against the smell of the river. She and I also carried small equipment bags. Stu Papa hesitated only briefly and ducked right into the culvert holding up the handheld camera he brought to his gorilla raid. As soon as his butt disappeared into the pipe, I followed. Katrina ducked in, still crossing her arms behind me. At the first juncture, it opened up into a larger chamber, 
portended as we entered, by the light of a flame against the concrete. There was a pulse in the air, which I took to be someone playing a drum. Three beats on, a fourth equal beat off, a quick, chaotic heartbeat, lub-dub plus one. For only a second I felt like a child disobeying the arbitration of his parent, a little bit of lawbreaker's guilt, the fear of a scolding and shame, but then I remembered who they were, these people, according to the book, and who would be with them. It was beyond good and bad, all morality absolved. Stu Pops stopped and put his face around the corner. He waved back at us and raised his camera. I peered around his shoulder and Katrina around mine. We could have been seen, but most of the acolytes were turned away from us, facing the singular priest who read from a book. I already knew that they achieved their supernatural height from stilts, but could imagine the priest's proportions bewildered Stuart and Katrina. I couldn't see the drummer. Two figures waited unrobed, at either end of a slab, an altar, I guess, that lay empty in the midst of them. The man wore a white circular mask, smooth and glossy as a dinner plate, covered in painted eyes and a geometric pattern that reminded me of a fractal. The woman's mask bore a single cyclopean eye. She was crowned with a sliver of the moon. There was an image of this in the book, the two lovers and the altar, and above them was something like a falling black star being driven down from heaven by an angel at sword point. I won't dance around it. They began to have intercourse on the altar. Katrina watched for a few seconds before making a noise and turning away, going back out the culvert. When the ritual actor penetrated his partner, she moaned loudly, and the congregation seemed to cry out loud with her, and the drumming of the invisible drum crescendoed. As he lay her back on the slab, I knew for sure she was familiar, an actor, a star, I thought at first. But then I knew, as she cried out again, I had met her not long ago above ground, where the sun had brought out the chestnut in her hair in the courtyard of the commune. I felt sick. I also was tempted to turn away, but Stuart interrupted my masochistic thoughts. Do you realize who that is? That's the producer over at... He whispered, naming a major studio. I don't know which he meant, but it was probably the priest, since he was the only figure whose face we could clearly see. Stuart seemed in awe, perhaps even in shock. The drums transformed into alternating triplets and duplets, a warlike five-strike beat. An orb of brownish light, like a tungsten bulb during a brownout, seemed to congeal from the jaundiced candlelight above the lovers near the ceiling. Stuart noticed it too. The fuck is that? I heard him whisper. It only became more distinct as they continued to fuck, gloaming darker until it became nearly black like a suspended drop of motor oil. The shadows themselves began to dance like jostled liquid as reality itself seemed on the verge of failure. Suddenly, as we almost became accustomed to the still black ball that hung in the air, it slid downward like a falling star or a raindrop on the window, toward the belly of the poetess. But at the same instant, the shadows leapt to life, as if reaching, as if raising arms and moaning worship. Everything in the room reeled as if it had been tilted to one side. The cold lords had come. That tar-like droplet unfurled into the shape of a man and scrambled with all fours and with apparent desperation toward my poetess. A white spark shone suddenly at the ceiling, above and following the shadow man. And this blossomed into a singular eyeball, winged with wings of white feathers, gazing serenely down at the act below. I was gripped by a primal, instinctual fear, as if of an ancient enemy that made all my hair stand up. The whole chamber seemed to hum, to chant perhaps as one. As if in response to the watcher's entrance, all of the liquid shadows reached and writhed as if attempting to swat at it. And in response to the gaze of that mighty eye, the shadows too blossomed full of knowing eyes. The luminous one chased the hissing and spitting shadow man into the woman's womb, confirming the horrible knowledge of the initiates which I had learned in the last pages of the demon's hammer. Human flesh is the prison that prevents the cold lords from utterly corrupting God's creation. 
The flesh is the prison and the delusion, and the cold lord is the unseeable shadow intuited by those who believe in the human soul. And this eternal sewer-loving cult, it hastens the day that what is underground might emerge into the mainstream, when shadows emerge into broad daylight. The flood of blackness scattered around the sewers and grew like the tendrils of a fractal pattern, over walls, over drains, over water, over my shoe. Across the gowns of the initiates, and wherever it snaked, wide, serene eyes stared. There was screaming. I don't know who it was. It seemed too distant for Stu. It may have been me. I ran. When Katrina saw me coming from the culvert, her face contorted into something animal, and she also screamed. I ran down to the water and fell over and cried, palms in the gross river. In the ripples, under the sickly streetlight, flickered the image of a face, mine, yet stained, and broken out in a rash of enlightened eyes. I didn't know the exterminator could make house calls so quickly. I know. It sounds like there's a war going on in there, doesn't it? You can see the shop's walls shaking and the fumes coming out through the cracks. Was that a scream? Wait. Who's this fella coming up the street? Don't know. My name is Patrick McGannon, paranormal investigator. Have you gentlemen seen a moth person in the vicinity? I have been painstakingly tracking the Mothman across country for seven years, filming my journey for a documentary feature film. I feel I've come close to getting the footage I need. The final footage! Which will be the big reveal of the elusive Mothman, and I know that he is near. Even, oh, pump the ever-loving brakes? Is that an, an exterminator? What in the love of Sasquatch is he exterminating? I wouldn't worry about him. Holy ghost! What is that? Oh, that? That's Buggles. He's my teacup pig. Did it just speak? I worry about me! Ouch! It's a baby! That's no pig, that's... Say hi to the nice man, Puggy. <laughs> Matt, wasn't there just somebody else here we were talking to? I don't know, but I feel funny. Oh, here, Puggles. What have you got in your mouth, little guy? Is that a cocktail wiener? And where did all this ketchup come from? Weird. Brett, do you ever feel like you're about to remember something, but the memory's just not coming back? Give it time, Matt. Everything's eventual. Man, I get it. King has written a lot of books. Now put a cap on it before I show you my dark half. Oh, damn it, now I'm doing it. Ha. Keep it in your pants, gunslinger. Oddly enough, that has a lot to do with my next story. Things coming out of or going into someone's pants? A little bit of both. What do you know about intergalactic demonic cross-pollination with a side of psychosis? Gives me a rash. I am the Desolator of Aboth Kanath. Monsterport is a production of Warped Box Media. Today's story was written and performed by the Talmud in Music by him too. 
rate us on iTunes or this little piggy will nibble your fucking toes! We might even read your review on the air. SHUT UP, HUMAN! Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram, but not on Pinterest! I loathe your CD bank and your Tom Hiddleston, for I am the desolator, the defiler, the- Huggy poo, time for suppy sup. across the country for seven years filming my journey for a documentary feature film. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. God damn it. (laughs) Nothing came out. I went to make the noise and just nothing came out of my mouth. on Twitter or Instagram, but not on Pinterest. I loathe your zitty bait. How do you say that? Sorry.